Welcome to this podcast. This is going to be about the life and times of Tim Heal. In this series of podcasts, I'm going to take you through my life from birth to retirement. I will be covering some of the major events in my life and some of the successes and failures that I've had during my lifetime. So sit back, strap yourself in, it's going to be a bit of a bumpy ride. Welcome to episode 11 of the Tim Hill Podcasts. In the last episode, I'd returned from Macedonia, I'd been demobbed, I'd got a new contract and I was set up in the training cell. In this episode, I'm going to take you through what happened next, what I did when I finally got to Afghanistan. The first couple of months of 2002 were quite busy for us. We were trying to get the team ready to go to Afghanistan. We were also trying to get the kit ready to go to Afghanistan. And everything had to go in by air. So everything was being delayed and everything was put on a different priority. We did manage to get the team boss out, who's a major at the time. And he flew out, I guess it was around about the middle of February. And the next part of the team went out at the end of February beginning of March. I was held back for a while with another guy. We were on tender hooks waiting for for our turn to get out there. But because of the limited amount of space and airtime to get stuff out there, we were delayed. During this delay, I managed to put our time to really good use. We'd have a training program where we'd get up in the morning, we'd meet up in the office around about half past eight, all go off down the gym and we'd have a really good workout. And then we get into work around about 10 o'clock after having a shower, have a cup of tea, and then we'll get down to work, working up some campaign plans of what we were actually going to do when we finally got there. We were getting some intelligence coming back from our, our major that was on the ground, and he was coming up with some ideas that he wanted to do. At the same time, he was out there recruiting for interpreters. When the guys finally left, I guess it was around about sort of towards the later part of February, when they flew out with the kit, they only took a limited amount of kit with them. There was only three guys that were able to go. Unfortunately, I was held back with two other guys and we would come along a little bit later, which turned out to be quite a bit later because I didn't actually get to, to fly out until the beginning of April. So that was it. We were on our way. Early April, we were taken down to Bryce Norton. We stayed at a gateway overnight because we had an early flight the following morning. We got on the VC-10 that flew us to Bahrain and in Bahrain we were going to change aircraft to a C-17 that was going to take us to Kabul. So we are on the flight to Kabul and over the intercom of the C-17 the flight sergeant said not wishing to worry you chaps but we're making a tactical landing at Kabul airport. Shortly all the lights will go out on the aircraft and we will dive towards the ground. We want to cut down the chances of being shot down out of the air or shot at from the ground. As I sat there, I thought to myself, what have I done this time? Here I am on a C-17 military aircraft with a handful of journos and a load of freight diving towards a war zone. And with this information from the flight sergeant, as most people around me were donning their combat body armour and helmets. Oh shit, well, I could only die at once. After what seemed an eternity, the aircraft finally 
came to a halt and appeared in the middle of nowhere. Only the odd guarded light glowed dim in the almost total darkness. We were ushered into a reception tent and we were greeted by a mover type who proceeded to give us a, a briefing. He told us, don't step off the yard standing as the engineers haven't finished clearing mines and other stuff. Oh, and stay behind the screens as the odd pot shot comes winging in and don't drink or eat anything local as it will give you the shits for mumps and make sure that you take your malaria tablets. Finally, they put us on the back of an Italian truck and the convoy left the airport for the headquarters at HQ ISAF in Kabul. The drive in the dead of night through the deserted streets of Kabul was very surreal. When we arrived at the base, I was shown to a tent and told to get my head down. I was quite knackered by this time. It only taken us about a day and a half to fly from England to get to, to where I am now at headquarters ISAF in Kabul. The thing with Afghanistan, and particularly Kabul, is about four and a half hours in front of the UK. So for me, when the guys came round about eight o'clock local time, that seemed about half past two in the morning to me. So trying to get up at half past two in the morning to go and have some breakfast didn't seem quite right. It took a, took a few days for my body clock to get used to the new time zone. We spent the rest of the morning doing an orientation of the camp that we were on. It used to be the old university building and the main headquarters was in, I guess, the main administration building and there were a few other small outlying buildings that were taken up with other people. Our small compound was round the back in what was, I suppose, a garden. We had a few tents that we had put up that we were operating out of. And then just off round to the side of that, there was the accommodation tents. And just over the back, there was a big field and what was the Afghan military academy, I guess. And we could look over the wall and we could see him playing Bushkazi, which is played on horses. And they throw around a dead goat, I think. That's what he looked like anyway tearing around on horseback and, and fighting each other, which was quite entertaining to watch. Over the next couple of days, we went for a handover takeover of what the guys had been doing as the, the initial team were going to go back to the UK and leave a fresh team out there. The fresh team consisted of, we had an Australian major female who was going to head up the team and she had her background in intelligence and she also worked with the Australian Special Forces, which I'll come on to a little bit later because we had some uh, interesting times, shall we say. We had a life support guy whose job it was to make sure that we had all the kit and equipment that we needed it when we needed it. And we also had a load of new kit that was going to be coming in. So it was his job to collect it and bring it onto book. And we had an ink core guy. The Incor guy was going to run, effectively, a database. He was going to put a database together of linking all the questionnaires and information that we were trying to gather from the locals. We also had a French captain who come to work with us. He was a godsend. He was a great guy. And we also had four interpreters. We had two Mohammeds, 
a Saeed and a Wasi. Wasi was quite funny. He was a devout Muslim. Whenever you wanted Wasi, he wasn't around. Say, where's Wasi? Oh, he's out praying. What, about 30 times a day? In reality, he was round the back having a cigarette. And then there was me. And my role was to look after the interpreters and to do all the production of whatever product we needed to do. The previous team came up with an idea that they would do a newspaper called the ISAF News. And what it would be was a three-language newspaper of good news of what ISAF were doing in and around Kabul. And they put out one issue prior to me getting there and then hadn't done anything else with it. And this I picked up and started to run with. Within the week, the first team had extracted and gone back to the UK. This left us to get on with it. At that time in Kabul, it was very quiet going around the streets at any time of the day. There was obviously a curfew on at night, but when you went out during the day, there wasn't a lot of people about. You certainly didn't see any women on the street as such. And those that you did, they were accompanied by a male and they were in full burqa. I don't know whether you've seen the blue burqas, but they generally wore just blue burqas. They always walked behind the male, so he couldn't see what they were up to, I guess. But they had to be accompanied by a male at that time. It had changed by the time I'd left, and I'll explain more of that a bit later. As things settled down, we got into a decent battle rhythm. We'd normally get up around about half past seven, go and have breakfast for about eight o'clock, and then get into the office, as we called it an office, it was actually a tent, for about half past eight, and we'd sit down and discuss what we were going to do for that day. So Dell, our life support guy, he would busy himself with getting kit to get ready to backload back to the UK and to start making preparations for the new kit coming in. Jimmy and Jean-Baptiste, the French guy, they would be working on the database and getting stuff put into that and going out and collecting the surveys that had gone out. And they had two of the interpreters helping them out translate. And I would be working with the boss on the next edition of, or the first edition of the ISAF news and how we were going to put it together, what we needed to get for it. And then we'd go out the rest of the day getting news stories, getting some imagery to put into it and keeping the, the interpreters busy with translating it. And it would be in three languages. It would be in English, Pashto and Dari. The reason we use three language is because it gave people the opportunity to be able to learn a little bit of English. If they could read Pashto or if they could read Dari, then match it across to the English and maybe pick up some English. The layout of the ISAF news was basically a tabloid style newspaper. On the front cover, we'd have sort of the top story of the day and a couple of little headlines. On the inside covers, we would have features and then on the back page, we'd have sport. We'd also include sort of crosswords in there. We'd also include some adverts in there, which we were advertising different stuff, which was the actual psychological part of it, where we were trying to get them to, we were running one particular campaign where we were trying to encourage them to report crime. So that was one of the ads that we put in there. At that time, we could pretty much do as we liked 
We could go out of camp when we needed to. All we had to do is book out with the Italians and tell them roughly where we were going. Occasionally, I would go out by myself with one of the interpreters and would just go and interview different people on the street. So it was quite safe to do that. Obviously, as time went on, it got a little bit more tricky. If we wanted to go outside the city, and we did on occasion, I went with the boss a few times up to Bagram Airport. The 3 Commando Brigade and Special Forces were hanging out. And that was an awful place. The whole place was like walking on the moon, I guess. It was just moon dust everywhere. It was just caked in the place. It was terrible. You put your foot down and a big cloud of dust come up from your feet. It's a funny old place. But we went up there a few times because the boss needed to do some work with the Australian Special Air Service up there. And as a sweetener, John Baptiste managed to get us a few cases of beer from the French PX, I guess it was. And that was a sweetener for them. And they'd do anything for us then. We'd been out there for a few weeks and some of the new kits started to arrive. We had a pinscar turn up with a load of stuff on it and it had a box body on the back. But it was an empty one that just had the flight cases in it. And we used this to go up to Bagram in. One of the issues we had was distribution of the ISAF news. We thought quite long and hard about it. We tried taking it out and delivering it by hand. But the problem there was that it just got mobbed. So what we decided to do was to have some delivery boxes made. And these would double up as also as letter boxes for questionnaires. So when we put the, these boxes out in the different locations, we'd deliver the ISAF news along with a load of questionnaires and they could post the questionnaires back into the box. And this turned out to be very good and worked very well. So that was the main project that I worked on was the ISAF news. And putting the ISAF news together was quite a challenge. We had um, a bastardised Windows laptop that we used for the Arabic script for the Pashto and the Dari with a set of Pashto and Dari fonts on it so we could do that. And what they would do, they would print off a copy of the, the, the article that had been translated and we'd have a big piece of paper that I would then print off the English and then we'd lay up and we'd just stick all the bits and pieces on and then we'd end up, once we've, once we've got it put to bed, we'd have to scan it in and then we'd have to print it off onto another sheet that we could then print from. It was a bit of a long-winded exercise, but it was the only way we could do it. But I did lay it up to start with in InDesign. Had we had a slightly different version, if we'd had the Middle East version of InDesign, we could have done the whole thing on one application and made life a lot easier and gone straight to print, as opposed to having a print it off in bits and then cut bits out and stick bits on. It was a bit of a, a fanny about, but eventually we got there with it. And I generally worked until about nine o'clock in the evening when we decided that that was enough for one day. And then we'd sit down and have a relax. And we had one of these fire pots in the garden. And we'd sit round drinking coffee or, or whatever. And occasionally, Jean-Baptiste would come along with a nice drop of Napoleon Five Star Brandy. The, the really good stuff, you know, the champagne brandy that went down a real, real treat at the end of the day. And then we repeat the whole exercise the following day. 
At that time in early 2002, around about sort of the April, early May, the situation in Kabul was evolving rapidly, with lots and lots of different moving parts going on. Hamid Karzai had taken over as the president, and they were going to have a big lawyer jerga. A lawyer jerga, I suppose, is like a massive meeting, a big parliament, as it were, of all the tribal leaders in and around Kabul and across the country. And they're all going to come into Kabul and they're all going to have a chat at this lawyer jerga. And I ended up going down there many times, covering different aspects of what was going on there. And one particular day, I was down there, and this woman uh, got up and spoke, and she was really captivating. She was sort of mesmerising with what she was coming across with. Although I couldn't understand fully what was going on, I had one of my interpreters there that was giving us a heads up of basically what she was on about. And it was all to do with women's rights. I would meet her again a few years later, but that's for another episode. They'd found an area in Kabul, a big open area, that they set up this massive great big tent and facilities all around it. I'm not sure what the place was. It had the space to be able to put up this massive tent and it was able to hold this big meeting. And I guess there was several thousand Afghans in there all wanting to speak and stuff like that. So it was, it was fascinating to watch. While down at the lawyer Jirga, I was able to interview lots of different people for the ISAF news. I interviewed the, the young lady that was speaking and she was quite fascinating to listen to. I also had the opportunity to go to Hamid Karzai's office and interview him there. And I also went along to the finance ministry and interviewed Ashraf Ghani. Ashraf Ghani later became president of Afghanistan. So I was mixing in quite high circles at the time. The ISAF news was becoming really, really popular and we decided that we'd outsource the printing. So we had a different method of getting it printed. Once we got it all laid up and agreed and signed off, what we'd do is we'd then print off a, a trace that we'd take down to the printers and then they would print it from this trace. It's quite a funny about, but that's the way it worked. Through our research, we found out that translating from English into Pashto and Dari doesn't quite work. It doesn't translate across particularly well. So what we decided to do was we get the, we had two of the interpreters that were journalists effectively before we went in and they would write the articles, translate them back into English from the Pashto and the Dari and that kind of worked. The problem we had was when it went off to a political officer and a legal officer before going to the general, they were trying to correct the English and say it wasn't correct English. So I ended up having to go to the general and have a chat with him. Fortunately, I knew him from before. It was General John McCall, and I'd served under him many years previous. So I had a chat with him, explained exactly what we were doing, and he agreed, yes, that's the way forward. The only things that you need to bring to me are the psychological stuff that's going to have an impact on the local population that needs scrutiny. Everything else, if it's just straightforward news, then it doesn't need signing off. So the guys would write up the stuff in Pashto and Dari, translate into to English that doesn't make much sense, but does when it's translated. 
into pasta and dairy. So that's the way we went on. That was a real success. And just as a side note, later when I went back to Afghanistan in 2009, the ISAF news was actually still going. It was in full colour and it went out across the whole country in pretty much the same format that we'd drawn up in those very early days of 2002. So I'm really proud of the legacy that I've left and the mark that I've made on Afghanistan. On the occasions that I had to go up to Bagram, it's quite a, an effort to do. What we had to do was get an indent in for a convoy because we needed escorting. And at that time, the guards on the camp were Italians and we had to get an Italian escort to take us up to Bagram. The drive up to Bagram normally took a couple of hours and it went over a, something like a bit of a, a pass. And this pass was littered with ex-Russian tanks. Looked like there'd been a tank battle up there at some stage in the not too distant past. And as you're driving along the road, you could see where it, where it rained, that it had washed down landmines. And the whole place was littered with landmines and blown up tanks. And it was quite scary. That was a drive up to Bagram. We didn't need an escort to go to Camp Suta that was out on the Jalalabad Road. And as you drive along the Jalalabad Road, just off to the left, you go down a bit of a track past the school to where Camp Suta was, which was the British headquarters. And if you come out of there and then turn left and go further down the Jalalabad Road, just a bit further along on the right-hand side was Camp Warehouse, where the Germans were. And we did quite a lot of work with the Germans. They had their PSYOPs unit out there, which was the Info Ops Battalion. And they were quite useful for getting stuff put onto the radio. They had a radio station at the time, so we were able to use their facilities to record some stuff and, and put out messages on their radio station. And then a little bit further along the Jalalabad Road, on the left-hand side, there was what was to become the Sandhurst in the Desert, which at that time was a big American base, and that's where the Americans would hold up. And we did quite a bit of work with them as well. As the situation in Kabul started to get more secure, more and more people were moving around. More and more markets were opening up, and more and more people were seen out on the ground. This in itself was a good thing, but also a bad thing. The problem was, more people around about, it made life for us a little bit more difficult to get out and about because the the security risk to us. But although we still managed to get out a lot, we also went, managed to get into the markets and some of the prized possession that we were able to buy at very, very good rates, I must admit, were Persian carpets, handmade carpets. And I bought two or three of these and I also bought a silk rug. I paid about $200 for it, and it was probably worth around about $4,000. And I took that back with me. And also, you could buy lapis stones, which are the nice blue stones that were famous for Afghanistan. And you could pick those up at a really cheap rate. The UK were due to hand over command of headquarters ISAF, which is International Security and Assistance Force, on the 20th of June. 2002 and during the month of May we started to see the lead elements 
of the Turkish army coming in. They were all set up alongside the the Germans in Camp Warehouse. And then we had a contingent came out probably towards the end of May who were part of the, their psychological support element. And we worked alongside those for a couple of months while we were getting ready to, for the handover and showing them how we were doing business, how we were do, doing the, the ISAF news and they would take over our area, our interpreters, and then run with that. It was fascinating working alongside the Turkish army. I'd never encountered them ever before. And they were quite professional, really. And they had all brand new kit, all supplied by NATO. I think NATO actually paid them to come and do the job in Afghanistan because nobody else really wanted it at that time. But they were good to work alongside. And the Germans... Um, laid on a big barbecue and invited all of us down there, the Americans, the French, a few Afghans and the Turks. Now, if you've ever been to a German barbecue, their favourite meat is pork. Unfortunately, all the Turks just happened to be Muslim. Didn't go down particularly well, particularly since we'd had a few beers as well. And the, uh, let's say, the, the, the Turks, they, they were happy on Coke and salad. But the Germans just didn't think. It was quite funny afterwards when you thought about it. So the temperature was rising in Kabul and it was getting up into the sort of 30s during the day. And still fairly chilly at night. So dropping down to about uh, 20-ish. And we were still at a really fast pace of work. I mean, we were still getting into into the tent office at 8 o'clock in the morning. And we were working till 8, 9, sometimes 10 o'clock at night. So we were really busy. And also out in the, the city itself, it was starting to pick up. The security situation in the, in the city itself was quite calm. And there was an awful lot of stuff that was going on. Lots of markets were open up. Lots of traffic about. The traffic was horrendous at times. And I got out down to one of the police areas where C Company of One Royal Anglian were working. And I spent a few days down there with them going out on the ground, trying to gauge the, the feeling of the locals. And we were running this particular campaign about how the police needed to know what was going on and to report crime. So we were trying to get some feedback for that, which was a good little exercise. Going back to basics of hearts and minds and where we'd come from in the past with psychological operations. And it was really good to see the guys on the ground really embracing this hearts and mind mentality of getting to know the locals and just embracing it. It was great. And I really enjoyed working with my old regiment. Another project that I worked on was Ariana Airlines, which is a national airline for Afghanistan, were just getting up and running. And they asked if we could provide them with their new in-flight magazine, which we took up the challenge. And we, we put together a quite a nice glossy magazine for them for their first in-flight magazine. And we put lots of stuff in there about what ISAF were doing, how the security situation was going in Afghanistan, we put in a few features as well, and we put in quite a few photographs. We got a photograph of the president and flight crews, and generally how Ariana Airlines were going to operate in the near future and where they were going to fly to. At the same time, 
just across the road from our headquarters was Radio and Television Afghanistan. And they were struggling with equipment. They had some really old, outdated stuff. And we made a donation of some camera equipment and some radio broadcast equipment. I went over there and presented it to them. And they were very, very grateful. And they started to produce some really nice products, particularly going out and getting some new stuff and putting that out on their local television. I'm not sure that many people had televisions in Kabul at the time, but it's something that they did. And the radio station were able to get up and running again, and they were putting out some nice stuff, and they were also doing some stuff for us, putting out some of our messages. One of the last big features that we run on the ISAF News when we were doing it was I went and interviewed the minister for the Hajj, who was the head mullah, for the whole of Afghanistan. And anybody that doesn't know what the Hajj is, it's the religious pilgrimage to Mecca. And they were organising that there was going to be several thousand people all going to go traipsing over to Saudi Arabia to Mecca for this particular pilgrimage. We'd spent the first part of June handing over to the Turks, getting them ready, working alongside them, making sure that they knew exactly what they were doing, how everything worked how to put the ISAF news together, how to, to get around the area, and how to work with everybody else. And as it was coming up to the last few days, to the handover on the 20th of June, lots and lots of rehearsals were going on, and we were kind of involved with it, but only in the, the sort of background. We didn't actually have to do anything other than just stand there on parade. So that's about it for this particular episode. I finally left Afghanistan and flew out with all our kit on a, an Antonov, on the 20th of June 2002. As a quick look forward to the next episode, I'll go through how I got promoted, how I got rebadged to being a Royal Anglian, and my tour of Iraq. So if you enjoyed this episode, share it with your friends. And again, thank you for listening. <laughs>